Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, which is most of you, my name is Brian Kill, and I come with greetings from North Shore Baptist Church, where my family and I serve. So thank you so much for having us. Uh, it's always a really special event for my family and I whenever we get to worship with you, uh, to carol with you ahead of Christmas, to fellowship with you, because uh, we're always reminded about the faithfulness of God for the preservation of his, of his gospel in the city because of you. Right, the gospel isn't necessarily the first thing that you think of when you think of New York City. But because of this church, sinners have a beacon of light to know Jesus. And for the purposes of this morning, I want you to imagine walking out on the streets of Manhattan. You know, the same streets where we New Yorkers are trained to ignore anything and everything. We just kind of look down and walk quickly to where we're going. But imagine one day, somebody is standing on the corner of a street yelling to hell with New York City. Most of us would probably ignore him and walk a little bit faster. Some of us may call the police to have him removed for threatening the safety of the people. But instead, before you could even process what the person said, imagine the people stop to listen. And you can visibly see the fear of God in people's hearts. And people are weeping. They're moaning. And then they're taking out their phones. They're calling their loved ones. They're recording the preacher to send it to their friends. And before you know it, the block is packed. Then the entire island looks like it's New Year's Eve. And next thing you know, Mayor Eric Adams is on every screen in Times Square calling for a citywide fast. Now, imagine you're the one that delivered that message. You're seeing all of this. People are crying. People are raising their hands. People are calling out to God. What would your reaction be? This is the story that we're studying this morning. Please open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. Most of you know the story. Most of you know the story well. Following the reign of Solomon as king, Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It is a time of idolatry and infighting and evil. And Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. God comes to Jonah and commands Jonah to bring a prophecy of destruction to the people of Nineveh, which is, at the time, one of the major cities of the Assyrian Empire. And nobody likes the Assyrian Empire. History is kind of a funny thing, right? Because history has the illusion that it's based on objective facts. But when you study it, it really depends on the source and the perspective that it's written in. Because while history is objective, meaning the events that happened, happened, the writer of those events puts it through a filter of their own mind and opinions and disposition, and the final product that we end up reading has been processed through that filter. For example, we know in U.S. history that the dominant storyline from 1861 to 1865 is the U.S. Civil War, yes. But if you go south, like to Georgia, you may see markers around referring to the Civil War as the War for Southern Independence. But if you go more north to New England, say Kensington, Connecticut, for example, there stands one of the earliest monuments of the Civil War that reads, erected to commemorate the death of those who perished in suppressing the Southern Rebellion. Same war, different names. It's all about perspective. But the Assyrians, in the history of the world, no matter what sources and perspectives you read, search the internet, go through your old high school global history notes, there are literally no mentions of anything positive about them. 
Even the neutral statements are followed by how barbaric and how awful they were. Nobody likes them. And so God sends Jonah to preach to the Assyrians living in Nineveh that their destruction is imminent. But this prophet, Jonah, whose sole job is to be God's mouthpiece on earth, by definition, refuses and runs away. Already, from the outset of this book, there's no account like this in the Bible. Because prophets do not run away. Jeremiah chapter 20, starting from verse 9. If I say... I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. There is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. No matter how much Jeremiah tries to deny delivering the word of God as a prophet, he simply cannot, physically, literally is unable to. But Jonah does. He rebels. He rebels against God. From the very beginning, Jonah is an action-packed book. He goes south to a port and gets on a boat that's headed for a place called Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction of Nineveh. But then when he's on the boat, God sends a storm so strong that the ship that Jonah is on threatens to break apart. The sailors on the boat throw cargo off into the sea to lighten the load. They pray to all their gods. But as the storm gets worse, we see Jonah's spiritual state get worse and worse. And then the action comes to a head when Jonah finally reveals to the sailors that the cause of the storm is because God is angry with him and that they need to throw him off for the storm to stop, not the cargo. Jonah would rather drown than preach to the Ninevites. Eventually, the sailors reluctantly throw him off the boat to save themselves. But the action doesn't stop there. Instead of letting Jonah get his wish to die, God sends a giant fish to swallow him. And if Jonah was like the prodigal son by running away in sin on the boat, the fish is where he comes back. He prays a prayer of repentance and turns back to God. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, God releases Jonah out of the fish and onto dry land. And immediately Jonah walks east to Nineveh and he preaches, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And within the first day of preaching, the whole town goes nuts. It's on spiritual fire. More action. These bad guys, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, they begin to fast and they begin to repent. They begin to cry out to God for forgiveness. They don't know that they will be saved because that wasn't Jonah's instruction, but they repent anyway. This mighty city of this mighty empire surrenders to the threat of God's vengeance against their sins. What unfolds is the largest revival in terms of scale ever recorded in history. Objectively, no matter what perspective you look at it from, And Jonah, chapter 3, ends in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. From the opening verse, the book of Jonah is action after action. The rebellion, the storm, the fish, the revival. But the final chapter, the chapter we're going to be reading this morning, is almost anticlimactic. It's a small conversation between just God and Jonah. It's the epilogue of the epic of Jonah. Please follow along as I read Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's so much to this story of Jonah. And Lord, so we humble ourselves to ask you to speak this morning. Lord, would the Holy Spirit move among us um, as we believe that it's moving in Asbury in Kentucky right now? Father, we just ask that you would allow us to feel you, feel the sense of your presence today, but not only through emotions, but through the words of of eternal life, which is from the scriptures that we're exploring today. God, would you use me as your mouthpiece? Uh, Would the words that are true land deeply and make it uh, grow root? And Lord, would uh, much fruit be born for your glory and your glory alone? In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we will unpack this narrative by looking through two perspectives. Point number one, the protest of Jonah. Point number two, the pedagogy of God. The protest of Jonah and the pedagogy of God. Two different perspectives. First, the protest of Jonah. So again, New Yorkers have packed the streets in repentance. Admittedly, this is more unlikely than the New York Knicks winning a ring, but just imagine with me for a second. And you preached, you preached that sermon that set the city on fire. What would your reaction be? What should Jonah's reaction be? Should he kneel and lift his hands in worship? Should he cry a prayer of thanksgiving? Should he be so humbled that God would use him for such an unbelievable miracle? Or should he see what is happening and race to Samaria to tell his people of what happened? That if God can do such a thing, what would God do to his chosen people if they repent? Should he be renewed in his calling to preach the word of, lo- word of the Lord like he's never done before? Probably all of the above and more. But he doesn't do any of that. He responds in protest. Verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Again, the it here refers to the Ninevites' repentance and God's relenting of disaster, as we see in chapter 3, verse 10. And Jonah's reaction is not a minor disappointment. He was displeased. He was displeased exceedingly. Literally translated, the verse says, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. This is a redundant phrase on purpose. Jonah is so angry that it bears mentioning it twice in the same breath. But remember that Jonah is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's preaching against idolatry daily. That's his job description. He's prophesying judgment against Israel if they don't turn from their ways and yet never hears a response back. 
We know this from reading the Old Testament. What will happen is that the Babylonians will take over because they don't repent. And they will destroy Solomon's palace. They will flatten the temple. Israel will be driven from their homes because of their unrepentance. And a prophet during this time, their job would have been to warn Israel. We also know this from reading the New Testament. In fact, Jesus calls the Israelites out for rejecting the prophets in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, when he says out loud, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jonah calls out to the Israelites, and best case scenario, Jesus says, is having his words fall on deaf ears. But Jonah preaches to these Ninevites, and instantly there's a reaction. And therein lies the irony. Nineveh should have probably stoned him. Nineveh should have killed him. But he finally sees fruit. Jonah, for the first time in his ministry, he sees fruit. And it's like enormous fruit. It's a vineyard. But his reaction to this is that he's angry. He's exceedingly angry. And this anger also manifests itself in protesting the love of God. See verses 2 and 3. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Hard to pray something so beautiful when you're angry. But if chapter 2 was a prayer of submission to God in the fish, chapter 4 is a prayer of defiance against God in the city. And what he starts off praying is actually from Scripture. Turn to Exodus chapter 34, please. Exodus 34. And while you're turning there, the context of Exodus 34 is that God is restoring the covenant with Israel after Israel forsook God in favor of the golden calf. You remember the famous story. Moses had just led the Israelites out of Egypt, and they set up camp at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes up by himself to receive instructions from God, and this is where God gives the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. But while all of this is happening between God and Moses on Mount Sinai, the people are still waiting for Moses, and he's taking a lot longer than they thought he would. So they go to the next guy in command, who is Moses' brother, and they're like, we don't know if he's dead or alive. Who, what are we going to do? And then Aaron gets his novel idea of taking all the gold from the people that they got from Egypt, melt it, shape a golden calf from it, and worship it. So while God is in the process of giving their appointed leader the first legal documents of their soon-to-be nation, they create this idol to start worshiping, a calf. So God says he will destroy Israel. Because he knows what's going on down there at the summit of Mount Sinai. They don't see God, but God sees them. And God burns with anger. But Moses responds by pleading and begging and interceding for God to spare Israel in Exodus chapter 32 and 33. So God relents. Just like in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. God relents from the disaster he would do to his own people. Very quickly, Exodus 32, verse 14 says, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Does that sound familiar? Once again, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So there's an intentional side-by-side comparison or callback between what happened in and around Mount Sinai and in and around Nineveh. And that's the context. 
Then, as God restores the covenant, he repeats his attributes that he's already said in Exodus chapter 20, here in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Starting from verse 6. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Sound familiar? But like the great pastor Harry Fujiwara once said, when there are a lot of similarities, it's actually the differences that your eyes should be drawn to. The similarities serve to accentuate the differences. And here are the differences. First of all, there's no one interceding for the Ninevites. The Israelites had Moses. Moses, the most humble man to walk the earth until Jesus. But the Ninevites had no one. Second, the attributes that God applies to himself in Exodus are now applied to non-Jews, meaning the non-covenant chosen people of God here in Jonah to the Ninevites. While coming from a sinful place, Jonah makes actually a profound, almost prophetic revelation in what attributes were previously limited to the Israelites are now, for the first time in Old Testament revelation, vastly expanded to the rest of the world, including, specifically, the enemies of the people of God. The third difference is that God shows compassion to Israel before they even repented in Exodus chapter 34. But here in Jonah chapter 4, God waited until the Ninevites tore their clothes, wore sackcloth and ashes, and pronounced a government-mandated citywide fast. Yet Jonah is far more comfortable with the compassion of God toward Israel than God's compassion toward the Ninevites. In Exodus, God had only relented because Moses interceded for Israel. The final difference, at least from those that I see, is Jonah's omission, intentional omission of and faithfulness from Exodus 34, 6. So think with me. We've got to flip back and forth. Jonah says in chapter 4, verse 2, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Some translation says, and truth. This is possibly because Jonah feels that God is not faithful to his own word. He's being untrue. He is not faithful to his threat. Part of this is further emphasized when Jonah also omits any mention of God's attributes around judge, justice and judgment in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. He tips the scales heavily toward the direction of perceived graciousness. See, in today's culture, we have a big problem with God punishing sinners. How can God send people to hell? How can God punish people like this? In the ancient Far East, the problem was, how can God not send people to hell? How can God not satisfy his wrath? But God's justice is equally as important as his forgiveness. And nowhere is that clearer in the Bible than in the gospel. Because God doesn't just press the delete button on our sin. He doesn't just ignore it and look past it. He doesn't just love us despite it. Instead, God's justice is the basis, the foundation, the reason for his forgiveness when he poured out his wrath on his son instead of on us. Because without the justice of God, there is no forgiveness of sins. But Jonah doesn't see it that way. 
In fact, Jonah actually adds to Exodus chapter 34. He twists it when he says, and one who relents concerning calamity. This is apocryphal. This is not qualified by a conditional. This is a straightforward statement. It's not like he's saying that God is one who relents concerning calamity, calamity when the unjust repent, or if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no if-then statement. It's a bold face. God is one who relents concerning calamity. That's just who he is. No ifs, and ands, or buts. By the way, some commentators would commend Jonah's anger here. They would say that Jonah witnessed God's mercy to such an offensive pagan people that Jonah had already assumed and foresaw the pending destruction of Israel through this. So Jonah's anger was really Jonah's grieving. But as we will see very soon, God rebukes Jonah for feeling this way. And it seems highly incongruent for a God who has incredible compassion and mercy for his enemies in Nineveh to rebuke Jonah for the grieving of God's chosen people. I think the answer is a little bit more straightforward here. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh destroyed. I don't think he wanted to give them a warning. I don't think he wanted to know they were going to be destroyed because a warning meant the chance for salvation for these people. Basically, to Jonah, the relenting of God's punishment against Nineveh itself was a punishment to him. Jonah has a problem with God's mercy. Jonah has a problem with God's attributes. Jonah's problem, like all sin, is a problem with God. We continue in Jonah chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Many other commentators note that the book of Jonah reflects the parable of the prodigal son. In chapters 1 through 2, Jonah is the prodigal son. In the parable, a man has two sons. The younger son demands his inheritance from his father, who is still alive, and runs away to a pagan land. And then he quickly squanders his inheritance, and when he is at the end of his rope, left with nothing to eat, he decides to return home in hopes of being a servant in his father's home, since he forfeited his rights as an heir. In the book of Jonah, Jonah leaves his duty as a prophet and tries to run away to a pagan land. And when he's drowning, when Jonah's at the end of his rope, he cries out to God to get swallowed by the belly of fi- to get swallowed by the fish. Do you see the parallelism? But in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is no longer the prodigal son, the younger son. No, he's the elder brother of the prodigal son. In the parable, the father welcomes the prodigal son back home, restores him as a child, and throws a feast for their whole neighborhood to celebrate the son's return. Only the son's older brother, the eldest son of the father during the party, he refuses to join. He leaves the party and isolates himself from everyone else because he's angry. And the father comes out, leaves the party, comes, comes to him, and admonishes him in love. And the story ends in a similar rhetorical fashion as Jonah with a question. And so commentators say Jonah, once a prodigal son, is like the elder brother by the end of the book. But again, let's consider the major difference between these two similar stories, because the difference here between the elder brother and Jonah is stark. In Luke 15, 29, the elder brother's basis for his argument is his own righteousness. He says, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. But Jonah has none of this in his protest which makes his protest much worse. He has no standing by which he is blaming God. He's got nothing. 
he knows his faults and still blames God for his kindness. Also note that there is a massive revival going on and Jonah is all alone. In fact, he is in the middle of the revival when it starts and he intentionally leaves to build himself a booth to hope that God changes his mind and crashes the revival with fire and sulfur from heaven. Jesus tells us, in fact, just a few short verses before he tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, 120,000 plus, imagine the party in heaven during Jonah chapter 3. Jesus says there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents, but in this text, an entire city is brought to its knees in repentance. Imagine the choir of the legions of angels gloriously praising God and the music from their instruments reverberating all throughout the heavens. Can you imagine the celebration? Can you imagine the 40 days of prophecy coming to an end and the Ninevites' realization of God's relenting of his own wrath against them? Can you imagine the party? But Jonah, the conduit, the channel, the means for this outpouring of grace on the city through his preaching, refuses to participate. He storms off and, like the elder brother, looks from afar, just burning with anger, focused on himself. And in being alone, he builds himself a booth, a little shelter for him to just watch and see. Maybe the Ninevites go back to their sinful ways as soon as the 40 days is up. Maybe God decides to still destroy Nineveh. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. So God appoints a plant to shade Jonah, and Jonah isn't just glad, he's exceedingly glad. The author is being intentional here again. In verse 1, he was exceedingly displeased, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah, ironically, is now exceedingly glad about his deliverance from the hot sun. But then God appoints a worm to destroy the plant, and Jonah desires death for the second time in this chapter. Jonah was just delivered from his own death in the face of rebellion against God. He was thrown off a ship because his sin had risked the lives of many other men on the boat with him. But God rescued him. He was delivered. But he quickly forgets and desires death again as he puts his own desires above God's. That's point number one, the protest of Jonah. Point number two, the pedagogy of God. Here we get to see how God teaches Jonah, how God responds to Jonah's anger and protest. Because it's easy to be dismissive of Jonah as childish, as arrogant, as racist. But God, he doesn't write him off. And this should be both convicting and comforting to us. Because we quickly forget. We quickly forget God's mercy. We quickly forget the truths we sing on Sundays. We know it in our minds, but in our hearts we, and our actions, we quickly forget. We quickly vomit the food that is fed to us through the preaching of his word. 
we quickly stumble and fall and sin. We've been saved drastically, and we quickly forget our testimony and justify our disposition towards sin. And we remain stubborn. We complain and grumble against our circumstances. So lest we be like Jonah, who was quick to condemn, we must see how God treats Jonah here. The first thing we see is when Jonah builds a booth, which in itself is again an ironic thing to do, given that the booth is a symbol of God's provision. Remember, Jonah misquotes Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, about God's attributes. But a few verses later, verse 22, God tells the Israelites to celebrate three major feasts the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's provision for Israel in the desert was that they lived in booths, which eventually pointed to the tabernacle that they set up, which is God's dwelling place with his people in the desert. Ultimately, this pointed to the tabernacle, which is Jesus, who tabernacled with us. So this feast is a happy feast. It's It's a festival. It's a gospel party, not a pity party. It's an occasion of joy, not of regret and anger. And Jonah builds that as a provision for himself in that moment. And like us, Jonah builds his own little makeshift kingdom to see his sinful desires play out. Additionally, it doesn't even sound like he created a good booth, to be honest. God has to, in what already resembles God's provision via the booth, he provides an adequate shade for him overnight. Listen, we are not as self-sufficient as we think we are. Our comforts, our surroundings even when provided while we are in our own sin, are kind gifts from God, that even in our sin, he would cover us. Another thing in this episode is that God does not speak much to Jonah, right? Especially considering that he's a prophet. Did you notice that? When Jonah runs away, God sends a storm. When Jonah is cast down into the sea, God sends a fish. Here, God sends a plant. Massive storm, massive fish, a little plant. The next day, God sends a worm to destroy that plant. And imagine the anger and wrath of Jonah at the worm. Maybe he finds the worm and he kills the worm. The worm took away that which made him exceedingly glad. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Jonah tastes God's provision and God takes it away. But God continues. Not always, but oftentimes, there, it, when there's a pruning effect in your life, Consider whether it is a sign of discipline from the Lord. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, Hebrews 12, 6. Is he removing some comfort in your life that you enjoyed in your sin to wake you up and notice God's presence? Let's continue. Verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and his sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. So God takes away the shade he gave to Jonah, and not only is the sun beating down on him, But God sends, the text says, a scorching east wind against Jonah. Now some scholars venture to think that Jonah's skin may be raw from being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Jonah was essentially being digested by the fish for three nights. His skin must have suffered damage. Physically, Jonah's in pain. I'm not sure if this is true, but whatever his condition is, whatever skin condition is, the sun is beating down on him and a strong wind comes up against him. And Jonah's decision to camp out on the east of the city, verse 5, puts him directly in the path of the east wind. Do you know where else we see the east wind? Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, the Red Sea, and the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. This is another act of deliverance. It was a strong east wind that God used to separate the waters of the Red Sea to deliver Jonah's people, God's people, his covenant people, from slavery and death to undeserved freedom in God's providence. So in what's another irony in this story, God uses the very thing that he used as his, act of, as his greatest act of deliverance up until that point in history to crush Jonah and teach him a lesson about his deliverance of a pagan nation. Because whatever Jonah's condition was to pray for death was miles apart from Nineveh's condition in the path of God's wrath. Finally, the only time God has spoken to Jonah so far in this story is to tell him to prophesy against Nineveh. Nothing else until this chapter. But now, the only time he speaks to Jonah is to ask him questions. First, in verse 4, God asks Jonah a question, Do you do well to be angry? And in defiance, Jonah actually seems to ignore him and leaves the city of Nineveh. Again, later, when Jonah had a burst of anger because of the plant dying, God asked the question, verse 9, Do you do well to be angry? First note, God's patience with Jonah. He waits until the end of the chapter to teach Jonah the lesson, but gives many opportunities before that to prove his own sovereignty and to help Jonah see. God had every right to say, Who are you to question my ways? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He could have said, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God had every right to say that. He does say that in Romans. But how many of us, Christians who have studied the word, especially those who have studied the doctrines of grace, have used these verses before to prove the sovereignty of God, but delivered it harshly, arrogantly, taken the justice and mercy of God and gone to break someone down who would ask why. God had every right to go for the jugular here, but he is patient and he is gentle and he is compassionate. And we see God reveal himself this way in this book to both Jonah and to his enemies, and we here this morning would be helped much to follow suit. Second, our sin is often a me problem. In just two verses, Jonah uses a variation of I, me, my seven times. You notice in Jonah chapter 4 in verses 2 and 3, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I, was, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. His focus is on himself and only himself. And God simply asks, do you have a right to be angry? Are you happy being angry? It's all about him from his perspective. In his anger, because it's a narrow filter of his own opinions and his own disposition, he wrongly believes what he perceives as truth. Because when we are angry with a situation or another person, it's almost always because we're starting from a self-centered I, me, my perspective. But it should start with God. What should my view of this sin be from God's perspective? This is further emphasized when God drops the mic on him in verses 10 and 11. 
And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Basically, you did not plant the seed for this plant. You did not water it. You did not know even this, whether this plant existed or not until you felt its shade. But you're grieving over this plant. You're sad over this plant. You pity this plant. But Nineveh and the souls that have been saved, you did play a part. You were the messenger of life, and yet you care nothing for it. Here God argues from the lesser to the greater. If this tiny thing is true, how much more should this be true? This rhetorical device is used in the Bible several times, right? Jesus himself does this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? The Apostle Paul also did this a lot. For example, he does this in the reverse in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And here, Jonah's sadness about the plant is rooted in the comfort and the benefit that he got from it. God's mercy on Nineveh is not rooted in Nineveh. It's rooted in his own compassion. Should I not pity? It's rooted in his own mercy and grace and himself, who he is. I am who I am. Another factor is the complete and utter insignificance of the plant compared to actual human people living and breathing in Nineveh. God, in his sovereignty, created all things. He created the plant. He created Jonah. He created Nineveh. Should not the sovereign Lord of all things pity that great city? And I'm sure you've heard sermons on Jonah before, because there are many mentions in texts, in writings, and sermons of Jonah's racism or Jonah's nationalistic pride. But God's rebuke of Jonah has nothing to do with either of those issues. God's more concerned with his own personhood as king, as creator. I am who I am. And God, in his reasoning, turns the tables here. Right? Because it's easy to have compassion on the weak. It's easy to be sad over those who are broken and need God. We see it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But what happens when the strong are shown compassion? What happens when the ruthless, those that are clearly evil and strong, are given the same measure of grace? Everybody likes the story of the underdog defeating the giant. But what happens when the enemy, the giant, the arrogant, the proud, the oppressor, escape the wrath of God? What is your reaction? If you saw that in a movie, would it make sense? The Assyrians, the Ninevites, the bad guys, Jonah wanted them destroyed because they were strong. They were ruthless. They were the clear enemies. Nobody in history liked them. They were clearly the bad guys. And God should topple the strong. But God positions the Ninevites as the weak ones. God positions the Ninevites as the one who need pity. God flips the script. And should I not pity, that, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? 
It's not the Ninevites who are strong and proud and barbaric. It's Jonah. Jonah believes he deserves a fish. Jonah deserves the shade. Jonah deserves to sit on the judgment seat and judge his creator. Jonah's reaction to Nineveh's repentance was a camp outside hoping to see them fall back on their sin and be destroyed. The irony is that his repentance was the one that was short-lived, not the Ninevites. And yet God is compassionate to both. Furthermore, only one other book in the Bible ends with a question. And it also happens to be a minor prophet, just like Jonah. And the minor prophet also happens to have been once sent to Nineveh, Nineveh some years after Jonah. Nahum chapter 3, verse 19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over, over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? He's talking about the Assyrians. And their victims crying out and celebrating the fall of Assyria. Because by this time, Nineveh has grown to be the major city of the Assyrian Empire. Not one of the major cities, like in Jonah's time, but the major one. Gone are the days of the revival, and Nineveh has returned to its ways and has become ruthless. And this question in Nahum is a question of judgment. So we see what happens to Nineveh. But we don't know how Jonah answers this question. We don't ever get to know whether Jonah learned his lesson. But the question is for you as much as it is for Jonah. Because the pity that God wanted Jonah to so lovingly see becomes clearer than ever when he doesn't send a storm or a fish or a plant, but he sends his own son to lead the glories of his throne for the world. Because in the infinite mercy of God, Jesus Christ came down as a redeemer to swallow up death so that he might give us life, to conquer sin that he might give us his righteousness. Because violating the laws of a holy God means that we, in fact, deserve the punishment. Not your cars, not your jobs, not your homes. We deserve the punishment. C.S. Lewis once said that every man is going to glorify God. The only question is whether we do it like Judas or John. Judas by remaining rebellious to the end, or John by remaining faithful to the end. Because a full display of God's mercy, not just his pity toward Jonah or the 120,000, but toward the countless generations of people like you and me who don't know our right hand from our left, who build our own little booths and crown ourselves in our own sin and arrogance, the full extent of God's pity toward us was publicly displayed in the humiliation of his only son on Calvary. Where the full wrath of God against sinners was poured on Christ as a substitute for us when we're the ones that deserved it. It was for mercy that Jesus Christ, who had dominion and government of heaven, condescended to earth that we might not just walk free from the wrath of God, but become heirs of heaven with him. Jonah's anger was because he felt that it wasn't fair. But Jonah, it is so much better than fair. Our God is a God who takes pleasure in saving sinners. So come to Jesus this morning. Surrender your sins, and like the Ninevites, not like Jonah, desperately call on Jesus because there's no other way. A final question as we close out for the believers here. How did you feel when you imagined the streets of New York City being flooded with repentant sinners? Was it theoretical? Was it just an exercise of fiction? Or did you actually get excited? Were you moved 
Did you quickly pray silently that it might come true? Because see, it's easy to be dismissive of Jonah. He's childish. He complains too much. But at least Jonah believed that there was a chance of repentance and revival by his preaching to Nineveh. That's why he ran. Do you believe it's possible for God to move in this way today? Not just in this book. In a place especially like New York City. Because God is not distant. God is not removed from your situation. He sees us and pities us and acts upon it for his glory. So let's pray that we would witness salvation on this scale. That the entire city of New York would be a beacon of light for the world. That countless sinners would come to know his mercy and be saved to be reconciled to God. That countless stale souls would have a vivaciousness returned to their worship of God. That there would be a desperation among all the peoples. That church would be filled with loud praise and worship rather than just reading words off a screen. That we can worship him on earth as in Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. What an amazing God we have. Praise God for his mercy and his compassion and his pity toward us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of Jonah, but more importantly, we thank you for your compassion and love and mercy for us. For we do not know how harmful and how evil and how poisonous our sin is. We don't know. We find joy in the evils that belong to this world that are contrary to you and that which are contradictory to that which you made us to worship. And God, would you open our eyes? Would you let us see your love and your compassion that you would pity us to come down to earth, to step down into earth to save us from our own selves? Lord, would you allow us to see you for who you are? Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.